Good evening, and welcome to In Review with the Vampire, a podcast where every week we go slightly deeper into the story of Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles novels. I'm Olivia, I'm the cool one, and next to me is Ashling, who's also the cool one, if you had to ask me. I don't think anyone was asking. Listen, Ash, these vampires... They have a bad relationship. It's based on lies and manipulation, and it's problematic. And I'm just trying to set an example for the community. Trying to be positive. I'm trying to bring the vibes. Well, you know, we haven't even talked about anything yet, so I I think you're you're kind of getting ahead of ourselves. I just want to start off on a positive note. I want to bring energy. (sighs) It's my vampire thing. (laughs) all right so um we read the first 30 odd pages of the book uh do we just want to go right into yeah we started right at the beginning with section one of uh was it 1976's interview with the vampire and ashling if i could throw it to you what happened in section one in the present late 20th century the vampire Louis has agreed to be interviewed by someone simply known as The Boy. Louis begins by saying he became a vampire in 1791 at 25. Louis then discusses his family, immigrants from France, who owned two indigo plantations outside New Orleans, Louisiana. After his father died, Louis cared for his mother, sister, and younger brother, Paul. Paul, from age 12, lived a strongly religious life. So Louis built him an oratory where he can focus on prayer. At 15, Paul claims to have visions and urges Louis to sell the plantation so Paul could use the money to return to France where he would become, quote, a great religious leader. Louis immediately rejects Paul's request. They argue about Paul's visions and Louis threatens to destroy the oratory. Paul leaves the room and falls down the stairs, breaking his neck and dying. Louis blames himself for his brother's death. He falls into a deep depression and seeks to be, quote, thoroughly damned, but lacks the courage to kill himself. He leases his plantation and moves his family to New Orleans, where he lives a debauched life to bury his painful thoughts of Paul. One night, a vampire attacks him. As he recovers, a priest visits Louis and, to Louis' surprise, says that Paul was possessed by the devil. He calls Paul's visions evidence of satanic possession. Louis is angered and attacks the priest. Lestat, the vampire who attacked Louis, visits again. Lestat offers to change Louis into a vampire in exchange for his plantation, Point du Lac, which he wants as a safe haven for his old, blind father. Louis accepts the change as a way to destroy himself and absolve his perceived sins over Paul's death. The next night, Lestat and Louis visit the plantation. Lestat forces Louis to watch as he kills Louis' slave overseer, an initiation into vampire life. Louis feels tremendously guilty about his employee's unnecessary death. Lestat, however, doesn't give him time to change his mind. He bites Louis again, nearly draining all of his blood, then forces Louis to drink vampire blood from his wrist. Louis feels shocked by how alive he feels after drinking the blood, aroused by the pounding of Lestat's pulse in his ears. Afterward, the entire world looks more vibrant and interesting to Louis, even as his human body dies. 
quote, it was as if he had only just been able to see colors and shapes for the first time. Louis's first experience hunting prey goes poorly because Lestat explains nothing to him. They hunt a group of runaway slaves in a swamp, and Louis accidentally makes himself sick to the point of near death by overdraining the slave he catches. Back at the plantation, Lestat shows Louis that they can survive on animal blood. Louis realizes quickly that he has no interest in or respect for Lestat, whom he views as crass, unintelligent, and immoral. Louis has a hard time letting go of his humanity, and struggles particularly with the sin of killing innocent humans. Time passes, and although Louis needs Lestat to teach him the ways of vampires, he dislikes Lestat's company. Yeah, so that's uh, 35 pages in my edition. <laughs> Hell of a lot happens in this chapter. I was surprised, but I guess that's the benefit of the interview format, that he can kind of just talk through things and we get... It's multiple years, right? Because I think it's not, you know, it's not like... Because he moves to... We go from, like, Paul being 12 to 15. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then maybe... Yeah, it's... And then we cover a hell of a lot of ground. And... Most of yeah. what actually gets discussed in detail is after uh, Paul's visions start. But we do get that little bit of intro first. And then uh, even the events after that take place over the course of, like, I think a few weeks. Yeah. It moves very fast and Ash, there's so much fucking gay shit in here. Like <laughs> So I did some Wikipedia research, right, when you pitched this to me. Mm -hmm. And the Wikipedia page was like, Oh yeah, the homoerotic undertones of the Vampire Chronicles have been discussed and analyzed by many different scholars. And I'm like, I'm reading that and I'm thinking, okay, yeah, because it's about, you know, men with, you know, like big emotions, passionate relationships with each other. There's vampires. Like, I've I've seen an anime before. That's what I'm thinking. And then we get here, and it's like, no, out of, like straight up out of the gate. So much shit going on. Louis is just like, oh, yeah, vampire stuff is like sex. Uh, he calls Lestat his lover. Um, it's blatant. Uh, there's, there's this scene where they're at the plantation, and... It goes into some fan fiction shit when Lestat is like, oh no, there's only one coffin for us to sleep in. <laughs> and God, yeah. hell of a lot in here. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because I've read this book, I think, twice before. And I remember thinking that as much as I liked it, that it dragged a little bit. So I wasn't prepared for like the very first section to cover this much ground. But yeah, I mean, it just, it, it gets through so much stuff. Like, we get from the start of the story to, like, two or three days into Louis being a vampire. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's, I think it is well paced at the beginning. Like, you, the backstory here is important, like, in order to understand part of why Louis makes the decision that he does. But it goes by pretty quickly, and you just get, like... Hmm. You get mostly the essential details. I would have liked a little bit more about, uh, like, Louis' mother and sister, because they're sort of non-entities here, unfortunately. It's, like, it's very concerned with Paul and Paul's death, because that is the thing that 
spurs you know the rest of louis's mm-hmm. life which then becomes immortal life but yeah section one fair to say does not pass the bechdel test <laughs> no uh it may pass the hmm i had a bit in my brain we're gonna do the bechdel test but for vampires <laughs> two vampires have a discussion about something that isn't vampires uh we'll see if it passes that one yeah, I'm wondering if um, if Louis, if the rest of Louis' family is going to become important further on because fam- like Lestat's family ties are actually a huge influence on this story. Like his relationship with his father, who is infirm and blind, is like Lestat's in- most of his motivation in this mm-hmm. part of the story, actually. Yeah, I mean, um, early on, it's very apparent that like both of these characters... Um, even despite Lestat being a vampire, which supposedly you, you, you're not supposed to have your humanity anymore, they are both very heavily uh, motivated by their, fam- their their familial ties, which mm-hmm. at some point, you know, presumably... Trying not to give the game away. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, like, inevitably at some point if you're a vampire and your family are not vampires, you're going to outlive them. But, like, in the meantime, it seems like those familial ties, like those feelings don't go away just because you're a vampire. In this story, at least. <laughs> it's interesting because there's a scene um, in the coffin sleeping scene, which I brought up at first to be like, that's some gay shit. And it is some gay shit, but there's an interesting part of it where Louis first objects to um, sleeping in the coffin because he says, I'm claustrophobic. But the more he prof- the more he protests it, the more he realizes that he doesn't actually feel claustrophobia ever since he's become a vampire. Those old sort of human primal fears have gone away, but he's still acting as though he's had the he has those fears because it's like his what's familiar to his brain. So when mm-hmm. we when we see Lestat caring for his father, and not like caring, quote unquote caring, caring, like giving him a home and making sure he doesn't die. He's not particularly, like, loving with his father. Oh, yeah, that's fair. He does uh, get quite upset with his father. And I yeah. think, uh, I think threaten him or raise his voice a little bit. Yeah, there's a scene where the father is, like, the father says something like, why are you always leaving me at night? Where do you go? And Lestat says, like, piss off. Like, I feed you. I make sure you have a place to live. So don't talk back to me you know Mm -hmm. it's you know he's not like he doesn't like seem to be very emotionally attached to his father but he is like he does have like a material attachment to him and when i read that scene i'm wondering you know are these attachments that these two characters have to their family like real or is it something similar to louis claustrophobia where they act as though the feelings are real because they remember them but deep down they don't really feel that that's yeah. what i'm on the lookout for as this goes on i mean this far into the book we have no idea um how lestat treats other people that he claims to love or how um because i i think louis has claimed that He's, he views Lestat as a lover in some way at some point during this, but I don't think Lestat ever said anything similarly. Um, it's 
and we don't know how Lestat was before he was changed. So it's possible this is just how he is, but it might be a case of like being a vampire made him that way. I'd say my reading of it was that he... So there's a bit where Louis talks about Lestat and he says he's a vampire, but all of his thoughts are human is roughly what he says that like Lestat is this very powerful immortal being who has all of this you know he's like physically stunning he has a power over people he will live forever if he plays his cards right and the thing he is concerned about is how do I get enough money that I don't have to work you know like he has these Louis describes him as like really petty human problems and that to me indicates like yeah he was just a person who was like this and then he got turned into a vampire and that doesn't really change things i think we see a similar thing with louis where he when he talks about his pre you know life as a vampire he has all of these details of the plantation in his head and he talks about you know nature the nature around the plantation what it's like to live there to interact with his family there and i think that does gel with what he the way he talks about his he claims to have a respect for life and all of its details as a vampire and i think that does sort of line up with his you know the way he talks about his pre-vampire life so it's an interesting thing to me where it's clear that once you become a vampire some things change but also some things don't or they maybe become amplified and it's something I'm looking out for, trying to see where's the line or where's that criteria. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, yeah, I'm trying to think of the exact quote that um, Louis refers to Lestat as. I think we, I think we had it. Uh, Louis says on page 15 of my edition, he says Lestat has human problems. I'm going to pull up the quote. And Kindle was not good for flipping through books fast. <laughs> okay, I got him. Uh, on page 15, he says, As I told you before, this vampire Lestat wanted the, wanted the plantation. A mundane reason, surely, for granting me a life which will last until the end of the world. But he was not a very discriminating person. He didn't consider the world's small population of vampires as being a select club, I should say. He had human problems. A blind father who did not know his son was a vampire and must not find out. Mm-hmm. That, that's um, his first, like, that's the first indication I think you see of the disillusionment that he goes through with Lestat. Because he does have this period where he's like, when he first meets Lestat, he has this moment of like, supernatural, just like, he's completely bowled over. You know, you see that scene early on when Paul claims to have visions and Louis is skeptical about the supernatural and then Lestat shows up into his life and he's just he describes himself as being like obliterated by the incontrovertible uh nature of Lestat's vampirism and also he definitely thinks Lestat is hot (laughs) yeah um that whole idea of um of where his brother he he refused to see that his brother his brother couldn't possibly have these supernatural, like, these visions. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also later he re- remarks that he thinks it's odd that he was the one who became the vampire, who had this, like, supernatural experience and not his brother. 
Uh, Yeah, because what he says is that between him and Paul, it's funny that he should become the vampire because Paul is so was so different from everyone that he knew, and Louis considers himself a very ordinary person. Like, there's definitely this interplay in this section, at least, between the ideas of the ordinary and the extraordinary, and you know. There's the irony of Louis, who is like the normal one of the family, the guy, you know, the, you know, the oldest son who's just taking care of everyone and seeing to like the plantation and all of its day to day concerns is the one who becomes the supernatural creature, whereas the one who like is obsessed with Catholicism and claims to see the saints just sort of dies. And that's where his life ends. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, but then there's also the contrast with. Um, with his brother and with Lestat as well. Yeah, where he... So I say that, yeah, I wrote down, I think, in my notes that uh, Paul and Lestat kind of go through... They go through opposite processes in Louis' esteem of them, where Paul is just like Louis' kid brother that he loves very dearly until he claims to see visions and that sort of throws... Louis's whole perception of him off and I think you see even in the interview scenes the boy is very like well did he have visions is that a thing he could have had and Louis says I just don't know mm-hmm. you know there's no way for me to say and then when Lestat first comes in he's this like vampiric stranger and Louis completely bowled over by him and you know thinks that he he describes himself as like losing his sense of self in Lestat's presence um, when he talks about his decision to become a vampire, he says it wasn't quite a decision, but it also, you know, he, he describes it, he says something like, I made a decision, but all other paths were closed off, you know, as Lestat talks, like that's the power Lestat has over him. Mm-hmm. And then he spends so much time with Lestat that he eventually is like, no, this guy kind of sucks. Like he's petty and rude and I hate him. Yeah. And he ends up having this like very mundane disdainful opinion of him in the end it's an interesting parallel i think mm-hmm. um another good uh parallel or like that topic of conversation would be like the portrayal of like good and evil or like ideas of evil in general in this in this section mm-hmm. um there's his brother who claims that he saw visions which were from uh, saints and that you know they were like these uh, pure good visions but then the uh, priest that he talks to later after his brother's death says that what his brother actually saw was the devil and mm-hmm. uh, sort of the idea that like these saint, these two opposite sources could have possibly given like the same uh, the same visions to Paul mm-hmm. yeah I think there's a similar thing going on in, you know, the the framing of good and evil as the framing of the ordinary and the extraordinary, because there's the same thing of like, what is close to you is both ordinary and easier to say, you know, harder to say whether it's good or evil. And what's farther away from you is the extraordinary, but also easier to say, simply say is evil because the priest hearing Paul's story with 
no background, no personal connection, just goes, oh yeah, that has to be the devil. Whereas it's something that Louis sort of racks himself over. Yeah, know, I think despite, even to the present day. Despite Louis initially refusing to recognize those visions as what Paul claimed they were, he also uh, refused to, to see them as the evil thing that the priests claimed that they were. Mm-hmm. I think he, if I remember correctly, he takes those comments as like, an insult to Paul's memory, even. Mm-hmm. He says something like, you know, that was my brother. That was the thing that, like, took his entire life, literally ended it at the end. But how dare you, like, just dismiss it as, oh, obviously it was the work of the devil. Mm-hmm. Just because it's something you didn't understand. I wanted to ask, actually. So when he, when Louis talks to the boy about how he, dismissed Paul's visions initially. He calls that egoism. He calls it like a petty, disgusting ego egoism. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I drew a parallel between his treatment of Paul and his treatment of Lestat. Would you, I want to throw out a question there. Is his disillusionment with Lestat also a form of egoism? Is his, which I guess what I'm saying is how much do we trust Louis is the narrator of this story and his evaluations of what happened in it and specifically the people in it. Like, is, you know, can we trust his opinion of Lestat in this chapter? I mean, it's hard to say. He definitely could be an unreliable narrator. Uh, But, like, so far, everything that he said about Lestat is believable like as something else that might do uh, from everything we know uh so i guess the 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 thing is i when i like was going through the arc of this i had a moment where he gets to the point where he's talking about his disillusionment with his thought and i'm like it's it's it has it has a lot of parallels to like your first gay breakup thing of like the more because the more confident that Louis becomes in this new identity of his as a vampire, and the more that he has a sense of that for himself, the more that he stops seeing Lestat's sense of what vampirism is as something that is... It loses its like sense of newness and becomes sort of plain and then later objectionable to him. So, yeah. I mean, even within the section, there is the, um, the, the fact that Louis sees the way that Lestat treats killing and says, well, even though I'm a vampire, uh, I've, I've never, I've never stopped valuing the lives that I, even if I have to take them, like mm-hmm. he, he thinks that Lestat kills people and feels no remorse and doesn't see what he does as like necessarily a bad thing or like he doesn't <laughs> value the lives that he takes. And mm-hmm. Louis tells the boy that like, you know, no matter how many lives I am responsible for taking, I always recognize the value that they have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what he establishes as like the main distinction between him and Lestat. Louis claims that he has respect for life and Lestat does not have respect for life. Mm-hmm. But then, I don't know, in his first, you know, we see he also describes, you know, killing people in this section and... I'm not sure how it didn't feel quite respectful to me. Um, I'm wondering if maybe he gives himself away in his actual description of events versus when he's trying to write his call out post of Lestat. (laughs) 
Jeez, yeah, that's basically what this book is, huh? I'm sorry, I had to say it on mic. It's too good. Yeah, I mean, so he has a quote about good and evil, which is one of my favorite quotes from this book, which is, people who cease to believe in God or goodness altogether still believe in the devil. Evil is always possible, and goodness is eternally difficult. Mm -hmm. And so far, at least, I'm willing to believe that that is how he views life in general, and especially life after he changes into a vampire, where it's very difficult to be a good person and also like kill people and drain their blood so you can live forever (laughs) well that or just even like for for mundane things i mean we haven't really broached this topic yet but um there is like the whole slave ownership yes uh it is a it is the awkward is the most awkward and fraught part of this chapter that I'm much less eager to talk about than all the gay shit in it. But yes, our two protagonists are slave owners. Like, they own multiple plantations. And Lestat's really petty concern that Louis disdains him for is that he wants the wealth of the slave plantation so that he doesn't have to involve him. He doesn't have to work, basically, in order to get the resources that he needs to care for his family. So... It is, it's a huge part of this story, and, or at least so far. Um, I do think. I don't quite know where it goes. I am curious uh, whether the inclusion of that was just, like, a a factor of the setting, because, you know, it is set in the South in, like, an era where most landowners would have slaves, or if it's meant to have some, like, place in the the themes that the story is discussing yeah it's from this section i think it's definitely a hard thing to parse so so i you know we're both we're both on record slavery evil right definitely a moral evil uh and so and also a very fraught historical topic so when i got to the first mention of slaves in this book i was like Lord, you better make the you better make this worth it, Anne Rice. Um, and it's hard to it's hard to establish like where she intends to go with this because I think I because I think it could work into something um, where like the fact that you know the fact that these are. We, our two main characters are beings that feed on the lives of other people. And the fact that they are specifically, they are doing this by like biting people and draining their blood. But they are also doing this by being owners of these plantations, being complicit in the system of chattel slavery. Which is the, like you said, which is the main economic form of this setting. Like that seems significant to me. But in this section so far, we mostly just get minor references and Louis being very racist to his slaves. And so, you know, it's... I'm hopeful, basically, that it will go somewhere and this will become, like, part of the story. Because it does seem like the story is playing with these concepts of the ordinary and the extraordinary 
of good and of evil, of vampires as a metaphor, you know, basically like different constructions of vampires where you get a bunch of like Mm -hmm. vampires as homoerotic subtext and then vampires as a predatory ruling class. Um, And so I want to, I want to believe, but I don't know if I, you know, I don't know if I'm comfortable making the argument that like, yeah, this is what, you know, this is like a coherent thematic piece so far with what we have. Yeah. I was just, I brought that up specifically while we were talking about evil, because I was wondering if that was any part of her decision was to have another factor in the story that represents evil but we'll see where it goes hopefully it doesn't get any worse than it has to because you know some stories put slaves into their story and have no idea how to not do that really really poorly Mm -hmm. yeah i'm yeah i am also hoping that it means something and that it's not just a thoughtless inclusion i hope she didn't just decide to write a story set in this time period and then go, well, it's Louisiana in the late 1700s. Of course, there's going to be slaves. I do hope that we are meant to look at this and be like, I hope that we're meant to look at the situation at Point de Locke and be like, oh, these people are like, these people are evil as hell. I hope it's not meant to be taken as just a fact of the setting because that would be disappointing. Yeah. Um, uh, so some of the themes that we haven't generated to talking about yet. Uh, we talked about, I guess we haven't talked too much about like the manipulation that mm-hmm. uh, Lestat uses in this section, because that is definitely a major element of the relationship between Louis and Lestat. Yeah in this section and presumably going forward. I really regret my joke that I made in episode zero about rating the boys on their dateability because now that we've actually started the book, we have two slave owners and one who is like an emotional abuser. Like Lestat seems to have like consciously set up this situation where Louis needs him and cannot get rid of him um, for his own personal safety. And it's cool. Yeah. It's grimy. There's Yeah, I mean it seems like it seems like Louis feels like maybe that he could figure things out on his own, but Lestat is very quick to make it sound like he could not, like that he needs definitely needs somebody to Yeah. There teach him everything yeah their confrontation at the end of the chapter is you know Lestat holds the idea of like you need so much knowledge to make it as a vampire and you don't even know what you need I'm the only one who knows because he does say the reason I think it foreshadows that what Lestat is saying might not be true is that he says you don't know all the ways that you can be killed but when the boy was asking about all these different methods of killing vampires uh, Louis was calling all of them bullshit. Mm-hmm. Crosses bullshit, steaks bullshit, onions bullshit. Like, you know. So, despite the fact that we're in, we're led to believe that there's things that Lestat still has to teach Louis, 
it, based on the things that we hear from Louis in the present um, setting, it, it, it seems like that's not actually true. Yeah, that's a good catch. I didn't think about that. But Louis does sort of, before Lestat even advances this case in the past, he does sort of take it all down. And yeah, it does seem like vampires in this setting don't really have the restrictions that a lot of the restrictions that are in the sort of general lore. Hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we know that Louis does learn these things eventually, uh, whether it's through Lestat or perhaps another vampire. Even though Lestat also makes the case of, like, if you try to find another vampire who isn't me, they'll probably just kill you. Mm-hmm. So, grimy-ass man. Ugh. There's, there's that scene where... Right after they make their their first kill, um, uh, and Louis goes back, and the first thing Lestat does is be like, "Oh yeah, by the way, you can drink animal blood." Like Louis characterizes it as like Lestat doesn't care to help him through all the changes and explain things well. I honestly think he may even take some like joy in messing with him. Like that was that's a he. There's no way he didn't see Louis' like discomfort and clumsiness at the whole thing, and so to bring him right back to the plantation and be like, "Oh, by the way, we didn't have to do any of this." Yeah, yeah, that is definitely like what that scene is. Is Lestat saying, "Now that I've made you kill and drink the blood of a person, you don't actually have to." He even says, "Like, if you're ever stowed away in a ship, you." shouldn't kill people you should just try and find anything else you can like rats mm-hmm. on the ship because you know the crew would go would go missing and then they would get very suspicious yeah lestat has this thing about like um he has this thing throughout the changes louis undergoing of like once you get to where i am it's not gonna bother you anymore and it seems like he's trying to actively like create that sort of reaction in louis by making him do these things that upset him and making him Uh like forcing him to be okay with it by making him think there's no there's no other way um yeah i mean there is unfortunately this isn't a topic that i'm well versed in but there is like a concept of like desensitization where if you're exposed to a lot of people dying regularly or killing people yourself regularly um such as like a doctor or like a soldier that you would eventually have less of a reaction to those deaths but i have no idea if that's how much that is actually the case or if it's a universal thing or if some people are unaffected by that so Mm -hmm. it's it's basically the case that lestat makes he has a line where he says like once you're a vampire, you'll laugh at death, basically, because it will be so common and unremarkable to you. Mm-hmm. And what I think's interesting about that line is right after Louis says it to the boy, in the he relays like what Lestat said to the boy. He says himself, and that wasn't true. That's when he then launches into his spiel about like respect and rever- reverence for death. Mm-hmm. Um, so it looks like you know at least Louis claims that you know he and Lestat were different. Lestat got desensitized, but he remains sort of conscious of the weight of all the killing he's doing. Mm-hmm. It is... 
this this whole sort of talking about Lestat's characterization, it's really interesting to me knowing that he then becomes the protagonist of the later books because this is not a flattering portrait we get of him. And it does make me very curious as to like, what do those later books look like? And what kind of protagonist is Lestat yeah. in these books? I mean, like... You would know. Yeah, well, yeah, there is that, but... Uh without trying to like spoil anything it it could be go either way right because there are books that have just villain protagonists or anti-hero protagonists but then there also mm-hmm. is the possibility that the way louis is depicting lestat is not accurate as we uh, touched on earlier so mm-hmm. yeah and like it's also possible they- that um you know that the books that have lestat in them are set after this and maybe Lestat grows as a person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Louis is a Louis is a character with a vested interest in making Lestat off as awful as he can because his whole case is that, you know, he is a vampire of a better sort than Lestat. Mm-hmm. So it works for him if Lestat is this like petty, awful, nasty man. <laughs> uh and there probably is a little bit of it, like if you just look at the facts, you know, he's a pretty bad guy. Um, yeah, I'm, I'd say if I had like one general, uh, thought about the, the whole reading, like, I feel like there's a, there's a real sense of like, I have an idea, but I don't know where all of this is going to go. And I'm, it was, you know, sort of breezily paced. It was like breezily paced where it needed to be and it slowed down where it needed to be. And as much as I have reservations, I think for this book, at least, it has kind of won me over and I, I really want to see where it goes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean... Anyway, before, before, we, before we head out, though, I just, I have to say, my theory... Uh, so when I read these scenes of the boy and Louis uh, doing this interview, uh, and I think about all of the very, you know, very in-your-face homoerotic themes, it just seems to me like the boy cruised Louis. Like, they met at a bar, and now Louis is out here like, let me tell you... Well, they, they met at a bar, and then they went to an anonymous room, and now here they are smoking... Well, Louis is like, let me tell you my entire life story. So, it's a whole thing. <laughs> yeah. Calling myself out a bit here, maybe, but there's a bit where the boy is, like, fascinated by Louis' fingers, and that reads to me as very horny. <laughs> I, you mentioned this to me uh, outside of the conversation, like, outside of the, the recording, and then I was expecting you to bring it up at some point, and you hadn't, so I needed to make sure that it came up, just so people could know listen, exactly what kind of uh, podcast they're dealing with. Listen, I have, much like Louis, fascinated with the buttons on Lestat's shirt or rocks in the dirt. <laughs> I have many thoughts, and my brain is constantly working, and sometimes I forget <laughs> parts of myself because I'm thinking about other shit. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think we covered everything we wanted to cover now. So, mm-hmm. uh, I just want to mention uh, 
because we might as well try and find something outside of the reading to talk about for fun each episode. Um, mm-hmm. Remember that interview that I linked you of Anne Rice, where she says oh, one yeah. of my favorite sentences ever? <laughs> she says that Louis is her, and that thus she is the only woman to ever be played in a movie by Brad Pitt. God, she can say shit. She can say things, and that gets stuck in my head. Ugh. She also has a bit later about how Lestat is the man she wants to be. Hmm. So. It's... God. And please do something uh, thematically worthwhile with your slavery angle, because I want to just... I want to become the Anne Rice stan. <laughs> I'm rooting for her. Yeah, I don't want her to. I don't want her to J.K. Rowling herself. I think it'd be hard for someone to be quite there, but I definitely, you know, I think I, it would be nice if the biggest reason to dislike Anne Rice is because she doesn't like fan. She didn't like fan fiction, and now she doesn't care anymore. Oh, right. I realize now that's what, the reason she doesn't like fan fiction because she's basically writing it herself with the coffin scene. <laughs> There's another quote about how um, her concern, one of her concerns with fan fiction writing is that once that fans could get to scenarios before her and then she wouldn't be able to write them. And I was like, well, how is that true? And then I read where they have to share the coffin and it's awkward and weird. And I'm like, oh, that's what she means. Yeah, because she's using the same scenarios they would use in a fan fiction, apparently. She's got to write the one where they go on a road trip and it just sucks and is awkward before any fans get to it. I mean, I need to read more fan fiction. That's probably definitely an existing fan fiction, but how do you know that's not also an existing book in her series? I mean, there's several of them. I know Lestat goes to Atlantis at one point. Literally anything else could happen. (laughs) Yeah, the road trip theory sounds almost dull by comparison. Vampire Chronicles 9, Lestat goes to the moon. (laughs) Hey, Ash, if there were two vampires on the moon, and one of them killed the other with a stake to the heart, would that be fucked up? Well, as we learn in this book, the stake doesn't actually kill them, so... Shit. I was... I didn't have a handle on the lore, and I was really hoping that I had that one right, but... That's why you're here, lore master. I, as much as I definitely have read these books, this is still like very much a refresher read for me because it has been years. So there's definitely like a lot of things that I've forgotten. I mean, I'm the vampire of the hosts, so you got to be the lore master or else like, I'll keep an eye out. I'll be writing down the traits because one thing, actually, I think one thing to note if you're not reading everything of the books is that. What's interesting about this portrayal of vampires is you can instantly tell is an important thing because they look, Louis is described as looking like a sculpture made out of bone uh, (laughs) with his skin color and texture. And Lestat says, like, don't let a human see you in the light or else they'll know that you are not a human. And there's bits about how he misdirects the New Orleans Uh, police when they come to investigate the death of the overseer and Mm -hmm. it's crucial that Lestat's father is blind because uh 
because he can't see Lestat. And so <laughs> Lestat can just talk to him without erasing suspicion. Yeah, actually, that like that's interesting because I've read other books where, like multiple other books, where the vampires are described uh, using like porcelain as the metaphor. Mm-hmm. But the bone metaphor in this one I had totally forgotten about. That makes it sound much creepier. He's also described as like cartoonish is the thing. Yeah, He's there's disc- the scene where he reaches out to light the boy's cigarette and the boy like says it looks like his arm just got really long for a second. <laughs> Cheers, bro. <laughs> yeah, there yeah, I need to I need to go back and collect all of the the vampire lore from this one because it is a, it's an interesting portrayal. I think it's actually pretty unique. Yeah, I mean, I think like um, the idea is popular in a lot of modern stuff, like for example, um the White Wolf Vampire the Masquerade setting of like vampires don't have all these like esoteric differences and like weaknesses and strengths and like, you know, they're just faster and stronger and they can jump really high and then they die to like sunlight and maybe fire and like you know mm-hmm. it really simplifies the whole thing I, I i prefer it that way because i think like the dracula style vampires that have like 27 different rules that they have to follow and like you know you you as a reader have to remember oh yeah they, they can't pass running water and they they get killed by a stake to the heart and silver and they get you know like onions and like you know like invites into mm-hmm. houses it's just like unnecessary i don't think it serves anything yeah that come i think that comes from like the collection like a collection of all the different vampire myths mm-hmm. i'm a fan of like keeping a few select ones i like the idea that they have to be invited into houses um yeah i don't think that's very popular nowadays but like it's i i, I know like sort of like the origin of how that one came about historically and it is a very it is one of the more interesting ones Lore master, give us the history. Maybe we'll we'll talk about some of that. Like that could be like a segment that we do is we'll like t- talk about like a uh, a specific like element of like historical vampires um, as they were in in different cultures and different time periods and like you know how that came about. Like one of my favorite ones is um, in the deserts. Um, they had something that was basically akin to vampires, except they were uh, they were active during the daytime instead of at night. Because if you live in the desert, the daytime is much scarier than the nighttime. Yeah, I think you mentioned this to me. That's we should we should do this segment. Uh, one because it's interesting. Two, it'll let us tag the podcast as educational. <laughs> yeah. Listen. I'm thinking about the brand. I'm thinking about growing the audience. Come learn one fact about vampires every episode after you hear us talk about gay shit for 40 minutes. Gay shit, emotional manipulation, the boundary between the, uh, the ordinary and the extraordinary. I held myself back from talking about like Weberian social theory. So thank me. <laughs> ah, Well, maybe you won't hold yourself back someday. And then we'll get to learn all about it. That's one of the educational. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, I guess that's all for that's all for this week. Uh, next time we'll be reading section two, and you know, seeing what happens. Uh, Ash, where can people find you outside of the podcast? All right. Well, you can find 
the podcast itself on Twitter at Lestopcast. You can find me on Twitter at Arsenic Shots. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Great Grebe. It's a type of bird. All right. Um, I guess that's everything. We will see you next time. Next time we see you with a new episode, a new section of the book, and, you know, some new fan fiction esque escapades. <laughs> uh, and until then, please don't tell Anne Rice about please. it. We want to live. Bye.